Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Wednesday, December 28th, 2022 and the end of week 44 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,227 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 308 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine war update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Some quick housekeeping. We'd like to remind our listeners that our team will be taking a well-deserved break for a few days, so we will not be publishing new episodes on December 31st or January 1st, and we'll be focusing on special reports in the first week of January. Our full situation reports and regular update podcasts will start up for 2023 on January 11th. Of course, if there are any major developments during that time, we'll jump in with coverage and analysis. Now, with that out of the way... Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain there is a significant risk of punitive missile strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure through January 7, 2023. Second, we maintain Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Third, We maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Fourth, while weather-dependent, we maintain the possibility of Russia, Ukraine, or both launching significant offensive operations on New Year's Day or January 7, 2023, which is Orthodox Christmas. Fifth, We maintain that the commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine, Army General Sergei Serovyakin, is under increasing pressure to create progress on the battlefield. Sixth, we maintain there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in January or February 2023. Seventh, despite increasing rhetoric, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of a major offensive operation is a remote possibility during the winter months. Eighth, we maintain that Russian President Vladimir Putin is attempting to shift criticism leveled at the Kremlin from the mailblogger community to the Ministry of Defense, despite his direct involvement in day-to-day decisions on the battlefield. Ninth, we maintain that neither belligerent will enter an operational pause over the winter. Tenth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. And finally, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture along most of the front lines. 
let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. On the Svatova axis, Ukrainian forces hold their defensive lines while making incremental gains. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Russian forces continued to attempt to push into Novoselivsky while launching spoiling attacks towards Stelmachivka without success. Additionally, Ukrainian positions in the Kolomichicha have reportedly been shelled for the previous two days, indicating a small push from Miazozharivka or Pidkuychansk. On the Kremina axis, Russian sources reported intense fighting around Plashanka, with Russian forces attempting to dislodge Ukrainian troops. Propagandists with Ridovka reported that Ukrainian forces had made additional gains in Chervonopopivka. There is growing consensus with our earlier assessment that Ukrainian forces have secured Dibrova, and we believe they have again advanced to Kuzmina. A short video in the forested area southwest of Kremina showed Ukrainian forces and a tank operating in the area of Dibrova with the caption, quote, Dibrova is ours. On the Lysychansk axis, Serhii Khaidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian troops are repeatedly attacking Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with squad and platoon-sized forces. Some assessment here. Ukrainian forces continue to make slow progress toward Kremina and Lysychansk, but without a significant shift in the weather or a larger offensive, large gains won't be made. Judging by the lack of attacks on Yampolivka, Tierny, and Nevsky, the salient that Russian forces created to the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border may have been pushed back closer to Kremina. The situation for Russian forces in Kremina is challenging, with the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, to Svatova severed, and the same highway east to Severodonetsk under Ukrainian fire control. The only uncontested Russian G-lock is a dirt road in poor condition that heads north to Novokraznyanka and provides a circular route to Rubizhne. Given the Russian supply line situation, unless Ukrainian forces can be pushed out of artillery range, the beginning of the end of the Russian occupation of Kremina is here. Keep in mind, as we've seen on other offensives, it could take weeks to force a retreat to Rubizhne. Russian commanders will fight to hold Kremina as long as possible, as it provides access to Severodonetsk and Lysychansk and puts Ukrainian forces behind the static defenses of the Wagner Line. The liberation of Kremina would likely relieve pressure on Bilohorivka, with Russian forces needing to tip over to a defensive posture to prevent Privilia from being put into a technical encirclement. In northeast Donetsk, with the withdrawal of private military company or PMC Wagner Group from Bilohorivka to Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk to the one in Donetsk, and fighting handed over to Russian forces and the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, and the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, the operational tempo on the Lusychansk and Popasna axes has slowed pretty significantly. On the Solidar axis, Ukrainian and Russian sources reported that PMC Wagner attempted to advance on Rozdolivka and Vesele from Yakovlivka. They were unsuccessful and suffered heavy losses. We no longer believe that Ukrainian forces are in Yakovlivka and have moved the line of conflict north and east. Heavy fighting continues east of Solidar, but reports of deep penetration into the town by PMC Wagner are exaggerations, based on videos showing Ukrainian troops freely moving within the settlement. Russian sources have claimed without evidence, again, 
that they have broken through Ukrainian defenses and reached the center of Bakhmutska. Due to a lack of photo or video evidence, however, we did not change the map. On the Bakhmut axis, little has changed north and east of the city. Wagner mercenaries remain at the gas station at the T-1302 and M-3, or E-40, highway interchange south of Pithrodne. On the eastern edge of Bakhmut, PMC Wagner remains east of the forested area near the mattress and ceramics factories and continues to try to push northwest of the garbage dump. Small groups occasionally cross the dam and ponds into the eastern residential areas, but are consistently beaten back. A video showed Ukrainian Mi-8 helicopters providing close air support, attacking PMC Wagner positions outside Bakhmut. PMC Wagner launched a counteroffensive on Opitne from Ivanhrad and recaptured about half of the Bakhmut suburb. Intense fighting is occurring around the hospital and kindergarten, with both sides suffering heavy losses. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported PMC Wagner launched a large offensive on Klishivka, with mercenaries from Rybar admitting in their latest report that Wagner does not control the eastern part of the town. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in Andreevka were shelled, and we've moved the hamlet back to contested status after Russian state media reported from there on December 22nd. The GSAFU reported a Russian attack on Dlyevka was repelled. The Institute for the Study of War had geolocated a small group of PMC Wagner mercenaries west of the canal in a narrow strip of trees west of Kurdyumivka on December 23rd. In our assessment, this group of Wagner troops was engaged by Ukrainian forces. We maintain our assessment that there is not a large presence of PMC Wagner mercenaries or Russian troops west of the canal. Mercenaries from Wargonzo reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Druzhba from the area of Mayorsk and were unsuccessful. More assessment here. The situation remains difficult for both Russian and Ukrainian forces, with a continued attempt by PMC Wagner to surround Bakhmut and Solidar that has lasted for six months. The reduction in activity east of Bakhmut while increasing to the south indicates a shift in tactics. A growing list of Russian mill bloggers is questioning the wisdom of the continued attacks on Bakhmut and are dismissing the commentariat viewpoint that the fall of Bakhmut means the fall of Ukraine. Mill blogger Vladlin Tatarsky, sharing the words of the Warm Wind PMC Wagner Telegram channel, said, quote, When the line of defense is static and organized, and the weather is by no means encouraging, dashing cavalry attacks and putting the enemy to flight are purely impossible. End quote. PMC Wagner and Russian forces are suffering from a critical shortage of artillery ammunition and a lack of armored vehicles. Six months ago, Russian forces lacked light infantry to take and hold territory. Now they have plenty of penal units and mobics to send forward into Ukrainian defenses, but have lost their artillery advantage and lack the equipment for coordinated combined arms maneuver warfare. Russian light infantry can now capture positions but the lack of artillery and armor support makes it pretty hard to hold those gains and impossible to turn marginal advances into tactical or strategic victories. This is why the line of conflict swings 100 to 1,000 meters a day in both directions, sometimes more than once. In southwest Donetsk on the Avdiivka axis, elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR attempted to reach the Krasnohorivka Plateau without success. Ukrainian forces have improved their positions in Vodyana, 
and the GSAFU reported repelling attacks in Vesele, the one where the Donetsk International Airport is located. In our assessment, Ukrainian forces have recaptured some defensive positions northwest of the airport and southwest of Opitne, which is north of the airport. The lack of reports from Piski, Pervomaisky, or Nevelsky further indicates that the 1st Army Corps of the DNR has shifted priorities, at least in the short term, and has likely moved resources to shore up their positions south of Vodyana and in Opitne itself. Fighting continues in Marinka, with videos from Russian sources raising questions about how much control is held over the town. The People's Militia of the DNR released a video showing tanks of the 150th Motorized Rifle Division entering Marinka from Oleksandrivka without light infantry support. Our team geolocated one of the firing positions on Kherovich Chornobylia Street between the grocery store and the university, east of Druzhby Avenue. This indicates that despite repeated claims from Russian sources, Russian troops have made no forward gains in Marinka for almost two weeks and may actually have been pushed back one or two blocks. Russian forces also attempted to advance on Pobida, also without success. This podcast wouldn't feel complete without a fake combat report from Russian sources. The People's Militia of the DNR released a video allegedly showing the precision of Krasnopol laser-guided shells that require an Orlan-30 drone to paint targets. If you watch the video, which you should, and we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon, there are three problems. First, when fired, the 152mm D-20 howitzer is not properly anchored and bucks like a mule. Second, it isn't being loaded with Krasnopol shells. And third, the video clips claiming to show the precision strikes are from the summer, based on weather conditions. The People's Militia of the DNR Telegram channel claimed, with no evidence, that their forces destroyed one tank, one M777 155mm towed howitzer, and six, quote, units of armored and automotive vehicles. Ukrainian forces carried out 105 fire missions on the occupied territories. The train station in Russian-occupied Yazunovato was shelled. The station is east of Avdiivka and is part of the GLOC supporting Russian offensive operations. After the self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, canceled the display of a Christmas tree in Donetsk, residents in the Kalininsky district took matters into their own hands, channeling Charlie Brown. Quick sidebar for context here. The Christmas tree in the Charlie Brown Christmas special is short, raggedy, spindly, and spare, but ultimately is the tree that they needed in that moment and does exactly what it needs to do. The queue to enter Russia, meaning like original recipe Russia, from the DNR through Uspenka is backed up over 10 hours, despite promises from Russian President Vladimir Putin and Pushilin that the continued delays and inspections would end. Russian state media squashed a story about Yevgeny Mamayev and Yevgeny Shibkov from the Novosibirsk region, who went to Mariupol in late October to combat rat and cockroach infestations. Unlike the Mariupol Comes to Life campaign headed by Moscow and including Russian propagandists, Mamayev and Shibkov's story was deleted from mainstream media for being too candid about the situation in the city. They worked in the so-called restored quarter where people live, and provided an uncensored view of their experience. Mamayev explained, quote, We passed two checkpoints to the block we needed and checked our documents. 
The streets in the city were deserted, and there were few local residents, mostly people over 50 years old. Some high rise buildings were restored by builders from Novosibirsk, and road builders were repairing the track. The picture is depressing. Most of the houses are destroyed. For some reason, there was a fire in the five story building, but there was no one to extinguish it. Glass from the fire burst and windows fell out. The house was just slowly burning down. For necessary food and supplies, they went to the local market, which was a bit reminiscent of the terrible Perestroika 90s. On the ground, on oilcloths or rags, there were taps, remote controls, televisions, spare parts, and other things. On the counters, on rags, paper thin sliced sausage, pieces of meat, bottles and cans of milk, potatoes, vegetables, and greens. Here you can also find bread, and sometimes it was possible to buy hot rolls. We are accustomed to visiting emergency zones, and such a bazaar did not surprise us. But the prices meat from 500 rubles, milk 120 rubles per liter. End quote. They reported packs of wild dogs roamed the streets, and that cellular and internet coverage was frequently out for two to three days at a time, making communication difficult. As they worked to exterminate lice, Rats, cockroaches, and toxic mold in bomb shelters and basements. Shibkov observed quote, If the bomb shelters are somehow adapted for the temporary stay of people, the walls are whitewashed, the floor is concrete. In the basements, there is a terrible picture, with dampness, dirt, and fungus on the walls. It is difficult to imagine that people lived in such conditions for a month, two, or three. End quote. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling on the west and east banks of the Dnipro. With Russian forces conducting 40 fire missions on free Ukraine, wounding one person. Russian forces shelled the maternity ward of a hospital in Kherson, where two babies had just been born and five women were in active labor. Other civilian areas were damaged by shrapnel, but no one was wounded in the attack. Ukrainian forces shelled Russian positions in the Olishki, Kohovka, and Novokohovka. There was no change in the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And no update on the status of negotiations for demilitarization. Russian occupation officials were reportedly preparing to evacuate civilians from Enerhodar, first under the voluntary rule, to be bussed to Zhankoy in Russian occupied Crimea before being transferred to Russia. Obviously, they mean pre 2014 Russia, because even though Russia illegally annexed Zaporizhia and claims Enerhodar is Russia and Crimea is Russia, they know better. They know better. Pictures emerged in Zaporizhia of prefabricated bunkers, blockhouses, concrete blocks, and dragon's teeth in large piles, which is, I'm sure, exactly how they are intended to be used. Some of the pre made bunkers are visibly deteriorating, and the dragon's teeth were thrown into a jumble at least six meters high. The GSAFU claimed that a December 25th artillery or rocket strike on Russian forces in Novobiloserka, Zaporizhia, wounded and killed up to a hundred troops. Including 15 employees of the Russian Federal Security Service or FSB. There were local reports of a large explosion on Universitiskaya Street in Melitopol, 
around midday on December 27th, with Russian security officials closing the street and searching cars and pedestrians. There was no additional information at the time of recording. Russia and Ukraine exchanged very sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orykiv. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, there are 10 ships of the Black Sea fleet on patrol, including one surface vessel and two Kilo-class submarines capable of launching caliber cruise missiles. Two drones were shot down over the Odessa Oblast. In western and central Ukraine, in Dnipropetrovsk, Russian forces launched over 40 Grad rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, at Nikopol, Marchanets, and Chervonovryurivka. Civilians and civilian infrastructure were targeted, with over 10 homes damaged, as well as two boilers for heat and power lines. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The Russian Ministry of Defense is sticking to its claims that air defense was able to shoot down a Ukrainian drone that was launched at Engels Air Base on December 25th, and it was falling debris that killed three and wounded four. The Russian version of the event is being dismissed by the Russian millblogger community, questioning how a Ukrainian drone flew for hundreds of kilometers undetected, only to be shot down miraculously over the base. Ukrainian sources claim up to five Tu-95 strategic bombers were damaged or destroyed in the attack, along with the control tower for the airbase. There is no way to verify the claim. The Ukrainian Air Force reported that the Russian VKS had redeployed Tu-95 bombers from Engels to other airbases, some thousands of kilometers away in Siberia. While the redeployment will hamper the strategic bombing of Ukraine using standoff weapons, the VKS reportedly left some Tu-160 and Tu-95 bombers at Engels. Ukrainian officials reported that the drone strike, plus the loss of a MiG-31K in Belarus for unknown reasons, thwarted a planned nationwide missile strike. Two days after Russian President Putin claimed that Moscow was open to peace negotiations with Kyiv, someone gave a microphone to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. In his statement, he claimed the West and Ukraine want to destroy Russia, and Ukraine must remove any military threats against Russia or, quote, the Russian army will solve the issue, end quote. Natalia Humenyuk, the communications director for Operational Command South, or OCS, said there remains a risk of another wide-scale attack on Ukraine by Russian missiles and drones, and suggested the next wave may be both missiles and Iranian-sourced drones combined. The Russian military reportedly took delivery of 250 Shahed-131 and Shahed-136 drones from Iran in December to restart attacks on Ukraine, after using the first 400 to 500 delivered in October and early November. Ukraine has shot down up to 84 of the new batch, according to Colonel Yuri Ignat, spokesman for the armed forces of Ukraine. Kyiv struck a defiant tone, with Ukrainian presidential adviser Mikhailo Podolyak tweeting that, quote, Russia needs to face the reality that neither total mobilization nor panicky search for ammo nor secret contract with Iran nor Lavrov's threats will help. Ukraine will demilitarize the Russian Federation and oust the invaders from all occupied territories, end quote. While it is true that Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, said that Kyiv was open to having peace negotiations with Russia, headed by United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, 
Kuleba added that Russia would have to face a war crimes tribunal before Ukraine would engage in direct talks. No Lavrov statement would be complete without mentioning Nazis or threatening World War III. He said, quote, We keep warning our adversaries in the West about the dangers of their course to escalate the Ukrainian crisis, end quote. And he maintained the Kremlin talking point that, quote, The risk that the situation could spin out of control remains high, end quote. Andriy Demchenko, spokesperson for the State Border Guard Service of Ukraine, said there are no signs that the Belarusian armed forces are forming offensive groups to prepare for an invasion of Ukraine. Kirill Budinov, the head of the Ukrainian Chief Intelligence Directorate, said that Russia's repeated rotation of troops through Belarus and joint maneuvers are not a prelude to an invasion, but are meant to lock Ukrainian military resources in place. There are rumors that Iran agreed to provide Russia with 1,700 more 131 and 136 UAVs in exchange for two dozen Su-35 fighter airplanes originally meant for Egypt, before they canceled their order. In our assessment, if this arrangement is true, it may be one of the worst military arms deals in world history. No, but seriously, seriously. The value of the drones is around $34 million and once they're used, they're gone. The value of two dozen Su-35 airplanes is approximately $1.2 billion before training, munitions, and spare parts. Further, Russia has lost dozens of airframes since February 24th, including 18 Su-34s, which will take them years to replace. Russia is pushing back the deadline in the occupied territories to force a conversion to the ruble, to April 1st, 2023. Ukrainian hryvnias can still be exchanged at the start of the new year. This is likely due to a hard currency crush within the Russian Federation. In a phone conversation with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, the Prime Minister of Italy, Giorgia Maloney, discussed providing additional air defense systems to Ukraine and committed another 10 million euros in financial aid. The United States Department of Defense stated they were accelerating the training of Ukrainian forces in the operation and maintenance of Patriot missiles for Ukraine and believed the system could be deployed in six months. Speaking of Patriots, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Mercenaries with PMC Wagner blasted the Kremlin in two videos, claiming they are unsupported by Russia, have no artillery ammunition, and called General Valery Garasimov, the chief of the general staff of the Russian armed forces, a piece of sh** and some homophobic slurs. The head of PMC Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, dismissed Russian claims that Ukrainians staged the videos to sow discord and verified that the statements came from Wagner mercenaries. In a third video, Prigozhin visited with one of the groups and shook their hands, eating a meal with them in a bunker. With Prigozhin in an open power struggle with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu and Gerasimov, there is speculation that the restrictions on artillery shells are intentional. Gerasimov, who created the hybrid warfare doctrine that includes social and mass media campaigns, likely understands Prigozhin's intent and positioning within the Russian political landscape. Russian complaints about ammunition shortages are pretty widespread and in our assessment, it's unlikely that PMC Wagner is being singled out for special mistreatment. Eight Russian Mobics turned into deserters, left their unit in Luhansk, and were somehow able to return to Moscow undetected. 
For whatever reason, they decided it was best to visit a local police station to return their issued assault rifles and machine gun. It went about as well as you would guess. They were arrested and will likely be shipped back to Ukraine by the fastest means possible. In Podolsk, Russia, a 70-year-old man set a commissariat office on fire while his wife filmed. Kids these days and their TikToks. Police arrived as the man was getting ready to torch the office, and he continued to set it ablaze right in front of the officers. The Ministry of Education in Russia has ordered that part of the school education framework include basic military training for both male and female high school students. Russian Colonel General Sergei Kuzovlev, commander of the Western District, was fired by President Putin and replaced by Prigozhin ally Lieutenant General Yevgeny Nikiforov. General Nikiforov has become the fourth commander of the Western Military District since February 24th and is considered an ally of General of the Army Sergei Sorovyakin. Are you are you getting a Game of Thrones vibe? I'm I'm getting a little bit of a Game of Thrones vibe. Putin ally Pavel Antonov, one of the richest deputies in the state Duma, reportedly fell out a third-story window while on vacation in India and died. Two days before Antonov's body was found below the open window, his business partner, Vladimir Bidinov, died in the same hotel. That's a terrible hotel. Antonov joins a long list of Putin allies that apparently became depressed and fell out of a window from sadness. Alexander Buzikov, the general director of Russia's Admiralty Shipyards, also mysteriously died suddenly at age 66. The shipyards, based in St. Petersburg, build and retrofit Kilo-class submarines. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minor graphic detail in today's report, and if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Chechen Kadyrovites have created problems in Russian-occupied Crimea and Donetsk. In Simferopol, four Kadyrovites have been detained after assaulting a woman and causing a bar brawl. Four officers and the commander of an Akhmat SOBR detachment went to the city to buy a black Toyota Land Cruiser and then to the Monroe Club. While at the club, one of the intoxicated men grabbed a woman's bottom, which drew the ire of her boyfriend, a Russian soldier. The five dragged the soldier out of the bar and beat him. When his girlfriend tried to intervene, they beat and assaulted her. The police arrived with at least one Kadyrovite assaulting an officer, forcing the use of pepper spray. In Russian-occupied the Makiyevka, the situation is much worse. Kadyrovites entered the home of a Romani family of eight, executing all of them at point-blank range with shots to the head, including three children. The only surviving member found his family dead, including his wife and young son. The executions were done so they could steal the family's car. The Ministry of Internal Affairs of the DNR announced that three suspects had been arrested and an investigation is ongoing. In Russian-occupied Melitopol, Russian occupiers ordered the destruction of all Ukrainian literature, textbooks, and any materials written in Ukrainian in an open act of genocide. The Russian Ministry of Defense transferred the bodies of 42 Ukrainian soldiers to Kyiv, 
repatriating 869 fallen troops since February 24th. In geopolitical news, the European Parliament has sent an ultimatum to Georgia. If imprisoned ex-president Mikhail Saakashvili dies in custody, their application for EU membership will be rejected. Saakashvili is reportedly in poor health, with accusations that he was poisoned by arsenic in prison. Georgian officials deny the claims. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban told reporters that the only reason Ukraine continues to fight is that the United States supports them, and the war would end with the end of U.S. support. He claims there should be a ceasefire and peace negotiations. In our assessment, Orban is playing the role of a so-called useful idiot for the Kremlin, with the United States House set to transition on January 3rd. But the United States Congress has already allocated $45 billion in aid to Ukraine for the 2023 fiscal year, and any House measure to gut the funds would be dead on arrival in the Senate. In economic news, the Kremlin announced it would no longer sell oil to any nation that supported the $60-a-barrel price cap for Russian crude. Most nations that set the cap have already stopped buying oil from Russia, or in the case of Germany, announced they would cease purchases in 2023. Russian Ural's crude has been selling for under $60 a barrel since the price cap went into effect on December 5th, and oil exports are down 54%. Earlier in the month, Turkish refiner Sokar announced it would no longer purchase Russian crude oil. The Russian state Duma estimated that 100,000 IT specialists, computer programmers, and other experts left the nation in 2022, That's 10% of the workforce. Russia's largest turbine manufacturer, Modern Gas Turbine Technologies, said it could no longer continue production without foreign-sourced parts. A lack of turbine blades and combustion chamber elements, among other parts, forced the shutdown. Arosia Airlines announced it was grounding a third of its Airbus pilots to save on spare parts for its fleet of European-built airliners. Arosia has 26 Airbuses in its fleet, with four no longer operational. Russian airline Aeroflot was also forced to reduce the number of Airbus flights due to dwindling spare parts. The ruble is in decline again due to demand destruction for the currency, falling to an exchange rate of 71 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices declined, with WTI crude falling to $79 a barrel and Brent dropping to $84. Russian Ural's crude rose slightly to $57 a barrel. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market increased to $2.36 a gallon, or $0.62 a liter, as severe weather impacted distribution and refineries. Pemex's Deer Park Refinery and Motiva Enterprises Port Arthur, the biggest refinery in the United States, was knocked offline due to temperatures plummeting into the teens, Fahrenheit, and it could take up to two weeks to return to full production. Dutch TTF natural gas futures are below December 2021 levels, falling to €81 per megawatt hour for January 2023 delivery and €83 for February. Chicago SRW wheat futures crept upward to $7.74 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. 
To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.